Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. That is the actual radio news bulletin heard across U.S. airwaves on December 7th, 1941. And this is Stacy Julian with episode 42 of Exactly Enough Time. This is a podcast about productivity, and while I do love to rock a day and get stuff done, exactly enough time is much more about being present. It's about recognizing the time you have and making the most of it. It's about choosing to be playful and live with intention, curiosity, and connection. It's about owning what you love and bringing more of whatever that is into your life. I am a life enthusiast and a believer. In this podcast, I tell stories and I invite you to celebrate people, places, and things that make you and your life amazing. So, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It thrust the United States into World War II, and it is well documented in history books and in movies. Most Americans are very familiar with the date, December 7th, 1941, with the details of that attack. But much less known is the story of the attack that occurred just eight hours later in the Philippines. Today, I will share the story of one Private First Class Woodrow Dunkley enlisted in the 5th Air Corps and stationed near that attack. But before that, hello, how are we? I'm so glad that you are here, that you listen to me every week. I appreciate it so much. And thank you for the wonderful feedback about last week's episode with Heidi Swap. She is truly a remarkable woman, and I'm so grateful for the chance to visit with her about her ideas. I love her vulnerability and her willingness and generosity as she shares her story. The opportunity, you guys, that was totally unexpected by me when I started this podcast, the opportunity to reach out to interesting people and invite them to talk to me, that is one of the coolest things. Definitely one of the greatest blessings of this endeavor. Just so grateful to the awesome guests that I have been able to have on my show. So huge shout out to all of them. So grateful. On Monday of this week, we observed in the United States Veterans Day. And I'm guessing that the degree to which you are aware of this national holiday and the degree to which you observe it is probably related to the closeness that you feel to one or more veterans. Today, if I do what I hope to do, I will share with you the story that has helped me better and more personally observe, appreciate, and honor Veterans Day. 
Let's start with my daughter, Addie. Addie is named for my grandmother, Addie Hall, who was named after her mother, Adelaide Lowe. Adelaide Lowe never went by Adelaide. She preferred Addie. And actually, interestingly enough, planned to name her third daughter June because she was born in June. But her husband changed that plan. When in church, he blessed this little baby girl and gave her the name Addie after her mother. Oh, how I loved my grandma Addie. She is, in my estimation, a perfect grandmother. But it hasn't been until recent years that I've become more aware of her story as a young girl. When my grandma was just 14 years old, her mother died in childbirth. And she, the oldest girl at home, was almost immediately thrust into the role of mother to four younger siblings, a sister close in age, and three younger brothers aged nine, seven, and two. This was 1925, and I do remember Grandma talking a little about this. She said that she would sometimes be awoken in the night by the sound of her father sobbing. He would pace the floor back and forth, But in the morning, he would happily greet his children and fix them a warm breakfast before he headed off to work at his general store, the one that he owned on Main Street in Franklin, Idaho. Now, many of you may have endured this kind of loss or hardship. I have not. I cannot imagine another person on earth that I needed more at 14 years of age than my mother. Losing her would have been devastating. I don't know how Grandma Addie grieved, but she did tell me that she did not want to do anything that might cause her father more sadness than he was already enduring. So she quietly dedicated herself to the loving care of her siblings, especially those little boys. Now, a two-year-old is certainly aware of the loss of a mother, but I dare say not so much as a seven-year-old. I can imagine Grandma Addie relied on the support of neighbors and friends, other nearby mothers, but I believe she was keenly aware of the needs of these brothers, and she loved them and cared for them like her mother would have. And she did so for four more years. At this point, her father remarried, and she began to turn her attention back to her own life. She married my grandpa, Lennis, in 1935, and my father, her second son, was born in 1938. Woodrow Dunkley was the name of that seven-year-old boy that was left to the care of his older sister. And as I mentioned, he was part of the 5th Air Base Group, who, after enlisting and receiving a few weeks of training, were loaded on October 27, 1941 onto the USS Hugh L. Scott in the San Francisco Bay and headed out to sea. At this point, the men and boys on that ship had no idea where they were going. It wasn't until they'd been at sea for four days that secret orders were opened and they learned that their destination was the Philippines. They made a brief stop in Hawaii and then arrived in Manila on Thanksgiving Day, 1941. 
Woodrow and most of his squadron were then shipped to Bugo on the southern island of Mindanao. Interestingly enough, this area had been used by Del Monte to grow pineapples. So the airfield that these boys were assigned to help build was appropriately called Del Monte Field. So they arrived in Bugo on December 1st, 1941, just days prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. The Japanese landed forces just south of Del Monte Field on December 20th, and bombing raids began the next day. U.S. troops stationed in all parts of the Philippines were not prepared for war. Promised and hoped for reinforcements never arrived, and the meager supplies of food, artillery, and everything that they needed were exhausted in the first few weeks of battle. Allied troops on Mindanao retreated into the Merrimack Forest and fought against the odds with determination, but ultimately they were forced to surrender on May 10th, 1942, after giving it their all for four months. The research paper that has allowed me to learn so much about my ancestor Woodrow states that Even with almost nothing to fight with and in a weakened condition, the troops still may not have surrendered if the forthcoming treatment by their Japanese captors had been anticipated. Because of this inhumane treatment, within a few months, thousands of otherwise healthy soldiers died. Those who lived became prisoners of war. I can't know what Woodrow anticipated war would be like, but I'm guessing he had no idea that just one year into his service, he would be on the verge of starvation, forced, often at the point of a bayonet, to do all kinds of labor, from light detail that included working in and around their temporary camp, to the horrifying job of burying fellow soldiers. By the following October, he was one of a thousand prisoners that had been moved and held then more permanently at a place called Davo. In November, another 1,000 soldiers arrived to the Davo penal colony from the North Island, and this is when Woodrow and his fellow prisoners would have learned the details of the horrific death march near Bataan and the extreme loss of life that had occurred there. This is when they must have realized how lucky they had actually been. Now, with over 2,000 prisoners to feed, most of the young, healthier, enlisted soldiers were assigned to rice detail. They wore nothing but a G-string and a woven hat, insufficient to block the tropical sun beating down on them, And it was their job to plant and harvest seedlings and grow the food that their camp so desperately needed to survive. As miserable as this work was, POWs on white rice detail received the most food. Every day at noon, they got one meal, a decent helping of rice, a little fish, and two radishes. One soldier, Hayes Belitho, who survived the war, wrote a book which I have read, and he spoke of this rice detail in one particular day that every account I have read mentions. He says it was late afternoon and the rain started. It was not a downpour, but a steady cold rain 
with a slight, cool breeze. Our only covering was a g-string and a woven hat, and we were chilled almost immediately. We headed back to the assembly area in time to board the 5 p.m. train that would take us back to camp, but it was late. Mechanical problems had developed, and it was dark when the train arrived. Surprisingly, there was no grumbling. We didn't have anything special to look forward to back at the compound. We were hungry, but we had become used to that. The problem was with the guards who were trying to watch everyone. They were edgy and mean. The return to the compound was a gradual uphill grade, and because of the rain, the wheels on the locomotive were slipping. Progress was practically nil, so the guards began kicking us off the car to push. They were shouting and swearing at us, but we could have cared less. Walking barefooted on slippery wood railroad ties or alongside in the weeds and brush was miserable. We were no longer riding, but certainly not pushing very much, so we weren't getting home very fast. It really became comical. The guards were screaming their heads off, but beyond that, they didn't know what to do. Over an hour passed, and we were still at least two miles from camp. Then someone started singing, God bless America. It soon caught on and became louder and louder. It completely drowned out the screaming guards. The train was moving slowly, but with practically no help from us. By the time we were probably a mile from camp, men in their barracks could hear singing. Bear in mind that life in a prison camp was anything but boisterous. There were no radios, no record players, etc. So the sound of our quote-unquote choir was coming through loud and clear. As we finally approached the entrance gate, all able-bodied men were standing and cheering wildly. The guards were horrified as we filed into the cheering group. Word quickly spread to gather near the assembly area. Completely hidden and surrounded by men, two of the fellows were holding a rolled-up GI blanket. As it suddenly unfolded, there, sewn to the blanket, was our American flag. There was dead silence. Tears streamed down everyone's cheeks. And then, in choked voices, we softly sang, God bless America. Hayes goes on to write, The sight of that American flag was the greatest morale builder that I experienced in those long years of captivity. Even to this day, more than 50 years later, when any of us gets together, we speak of that incident and remember it with great emotion. I asked my dad the other day what he remembered hearing or understanding about the war. He said you couldn't buy anything, rubber or metal or glass. There were very few toys. For a gift, you might receive a cardboard cutout that was printed you could cut it out and put it together to make a truck or a train. He had a ration booklet that each member of every family was given, and it allowed them to buy so much flour or sugar or other food. My dad would have been about the same age that Woodrow was when his mother died, but he felt safe and secure on their little farm. On Saturdays, his mother and father would sometimes go shopping in town and drop he and his brothers at the movie theater. They would watch a cowboy show. But he said there were always newsreels reporting on the war with real footage. 
It was these reports that made the war very real, even though it was all happening so far away. The newsreels, he said, were always very positive, so that was good. He also remembers air raid practice. They had to quickly turn out all the lights and go downstairs to the cellar. Once, later in the war, they had just moved to the town of Carnation, and their mother sent he and his older brother to the Grange store with money to buy something that she needed. When they got there, they saw bananas. They couldn't believe it because they hadn't seen a banana in years. The Grange was at the other end of town. Walking there had felt like a long distance, but he said they ran back so fast to tell their mother that they had seen bananas and could they please go back and buy some. I also asked my dad, what about Woodrow? What did you know? Nothing, he said. Grandma never talked of it, but he does remember vividly the day she got the news. She was standing near a little radiator heater and she just stood there and cried for a very long time. Gratefully, my cousin Scott found this letter from the War Department in a box of stuff that his dad had. He scanned it and uploaded it to Family Search so I could read it. This was the letter that was sent to Grandma Addie's father, and it reads, The War Department was recently notified of the destruction at sea of a Japanese freighter that was transporting American prisoners of war from the Philippine Islands. A number of survivors were later returned to the military control of our forces. There were also a large number who did not survive or who were recaptured by the Japanese and about whose present status no positive information is available. It is with deep regret that I must inform you that your son, Private First Class Woodrow L. Dunkley, number 19,101,309, was in the latter group. So, back to the Philippines. How did the ending play out? Well, 650 of the strongest men and boys, and this group included Woodrow, were moved from the camp at Davo to a new camp in Lasang to build an airfield. It was the summer of 1944, but these soldiers knew nothing of the war, hadn't heard a word for more than two years, until August 17th, when things suddenly changed. That night, the airfield was attacked by an American bombing mission. The prisoners were elated. They now sensed that the tide had turned and help was getting close. The next two days, following this attack, the Japanese unexpectedly gave them a holiday with no work at all. They were so anxious to see the damage to the airfield, reports M. Sneddon in his book, Zero Ward. However, they accepted the holiday without complaint. Just three days later, all 650 of these prisoners, plus an additional 100 from another camp, were told to gather whatever belongings they had. They were then roped together and marched a short distance to the pier on the Davo Gulf. What the POWs didn't know was that the return of the Americans to the Philippines was imminent and that the Japanese didn't want their prisoners to be a part of the coming struggle. The plan, which had clearly been discussed during the holiday, 
was to move thousands of prisoners off the islands as quickly as possible in unmarked Japanese freighters. Here's how one soldier described the process. They put us down in the hull of the ship, packed like sardines down there. They had the guards fix bayonets, and they'd send a bunch down the hall, and they would lunge at us, packing until they got as many as they could get down in there. Then they pulled the stairway up. They put timbers across the hull and rolled some canvas tarp over the top of that. They left one little hole open on one end of it, one corner of it, where a guard sat down and was looking down there laughing at us. It was like a furnace down there. No water, no facilities at all, nothing. Guards used a rope to lower a five-gallon can of water and peelings of rotten tropical vegetables to the starving prisoners. Fights for the food and water followed. They'd send a tin can down there for waste, and I believe it was the same can they had put the food and water in. There was a lot of crying and praying going on. I thought it wouldn't have been but a matter of days before we would all be dead. So, confined to the bowels of the ship and wallowing in human filth, the POWs arrived in Zamboanga four days after leaving Davo and remained there ten days, sweltering in the hot, filthy hold of the ship. Evidently, on two occasions, the men were permitted on deck to run through a hose sprinkling ocean water. The first semi-bath in years for some of them. Although they didn't know it, they were waiting for a transfer to yet another ship that would be, for the vast majority of them, a journey to oblivion. This disaster ship was the Shinyo Maro, and on September 4th, 750 POWs were transferred to it. The conditions below deck were even worse than aboard the previous ship, and they all waited for three additional days before leaving the harbor. But as the prisoners felt the engines roaring, they must have felt that perhaps the worst was behind them. Sadly, just 14 hours later, at 4.37 p.m. on September 7th, the USS Paddle, a submarine on its fourth war patrol, reached its target point in the Sulu Sea and began to fulfill its mission to attack any Japanese shipping they encountered. Only 83 of the 750 POWs survived this torpedo attack. Even though many were able to escape the hull, most were gunned down by Japanese as they climbed onto the deck or jumped off attempting to swim to shore. Second Lieutenant Edward Tresky remembered. Following the torpedo strikes, the Japanese guards unleashed a slaughter. A guard just stuck his rifle down into the hole there and emptied it and the bullets were whizzing all over the place. After emptying his rifle, he took a hand grenade and threw it down there, and I was sitting there where I could see it coming. It exploded, knocked me unconscious. When he recovered, Tresky was sitting in the water of the sinking ship with bodies and parts of bodies all around him. He escaped through the opening in the ship where their torpedo had hit. Once out of the ship, he encountered Japanese guards in life rafts who, with swords, bayonets, and guns, were attacking any POW survivors they could find in the water. Tresky swam away from the Japanese and started toward the shore of Mindanao, which he guessed was about three miles away. 
At that time, he had lost 90 pounds from his pre-war weight of 185 and was so weak that he joined another survivor clinging to a piece of wood, and together they paddled toward land. One of the 83 survivors died of a punctured lung a few days after reaching the safety of the shore. The other 82 were brought together by friendly Filipino guerrillas who lived in nearby villages. It's believed that my grandma's little brother somehow reached the deck of the ship and began swimming, but unfortunately he did not survive machine gun fire behind him. Perhaps because I've raised four boys, this is a particularly tender story for me. I already knew the power of story, but I am now even more amazed at how discovering stories, even stories about people you've never met, can change you. I remember the day I decided I wanted to know more about Woodrow. On some level, I remembered that Grandma had a little brother that had died in the war, but that was the extent, really, of what I knew. I logged onto FamilySearch.org, pulled up my family tree, and clicked through to Grandma's profile. I found where her parents and siblings were listed, and then I scanned names and death dates. My eyes landed on Woodrow's name. Death date, September 7th, 1944, Pacific. I felt a little pulse in my heart. This was it. This was him. It was just a thought and then simple curiosity that led me to take the first steps into this story. I reached out to my dad first and then sent an email to my Uncle Brent. Does anybody have any information, I asked. A few weeks later, Uncle Brent emailed me back a thick PDF that his son-in-law had discovered and sent to him. It was a research paper. In that paper was a long list of references, which led me to a handful of books written by survivors of this ordeal. They recounted in detail the stories that I've mentioned here today and recorded with first-hand accounts these alarming and terrifying circumstances that my ancestor had ultimately succumbed to. As I purchased and read these books one at a time and underlined these accounts and began to learn, I developed, as you might guess, a closeness to Woodrow. I can't for certain know exactly what he encountered and endured, but I know much more than I did, and I'm so grateful to those two researchers, David L. Clark and Bart J. Kowalis, I'll link to their paper in the show notes. They compiled this history of young men that Woodrow served with. As I learned about Woodrow, I wanted to share what I was learning with my parents, siblings, and especially my teenage boys. I knew, for my kids at least, what I could share with them would mean more if they asked me for the stories. So I devised a plan. I purchased a small bag of green army men at my local Fred Meyer. It's a grocery store. And I tucked an army man into two of my boys' lunches one morning, down inside the lunch sack with the peanut butter and jelly. I wasn't really sure what would happen next, but what happened was exactly what I had hoped for. Trey came home that day and said to me, Mom, why was there an army man in my lunch today? I dumped out my lunch like I always do, and all my friends were there, and they were like, Trey, what is that? And I picked it up, and I showed it to him, and he said, why did your mom put an army man in your lunch? 
mom, I need to know because tomorrow they're going to ask me. And unless you want them to mock me, this better be good. I said, oh, it's good. All right. Sit down and I'll tell you. Later, I don't remember how long, days, maybe a week, Trey came to me and said something along the lines of, you know, mom, sometimes high school and life and this world feel really heavy. There's just a lot of pressure. But I've been thinking about that guy. What's his name? That died in the war. Woodrow, I said. Yeah, him. I've been thinking about him. And it helps me to know that I can do it. I mean, if he can go to war and die, I can go to high school and not give up. You know? Yes, Trey, I know. This my friends, is what I do know. Stories matter a great deal. They are the means for building relationships with people we love, the ones right in front of us and the ones we can't really know until the next life. Stories and relationships. It's all about stories and relationships. That's where the secret to humility and happiness lie. And that's what I want to experience together with you in a brand new online class that I'm developing and teaching at stacyjulian.com next year. The class is called 20 in 20. And in it, we, you and I, anyone who registers, will create 20 story-based projects. Together, we'll discover and document and plan and prepare and start and finish Projects that preserve and share important stories. One of the stories that I want to create a project around is Woodrow's story. I invite you to visit StacyJulian.com and learn all the details so you can get signed up because I want you there and you need to be there. You can totally do this. You can tell your stories that matter. You have exactly enough time. I'm going to sign off today with a speak pipe message from Leslie. I'm ashamed to say that this is my first response to you, and it's awfully self-serving with you having a giveaway. I've been really late to knowing you, even though I've been in scrapbooking for a long time. But I have so enjoyed your podcast so far. I just enjoy your heart for the story. And I'm hoping for your continued success. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for being an inspiration. Thanks for your colorful life that you share with us. Take care. Leslie, thank you. I love new friends and I love friends who tell their friends about my podcast and about the work that I am trying to do in the world. I will be sending Leslie a story starter kit from the Story by Stacy line of products that I have developed with close to my heart. Okay, signing off. Have a fantastic week. Come back next week and I'll be here with another episode of Exactly Enough Time. Mm-hmm.